of the experiences that you go through in your life will um, lend, will manifest in the way that you treat people, right? And in, in the ways that you um, empathize with other people. And I think that, you know, for me, being a woman is one of them and being a parent is another. Can we agree that leadership isn't based on title or position? I have created this podcast to talk to everyday people who lead in extraordinary ways in their everyday lives, both professionally and personally, in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I talked to Gabby Hirschman, who is the CEO of Huckletree. We discussed the future of co-working spaces, what she's learned running a business as a first-time founder, and what she would go back and change. We discussed leadership and what that means for her, how they've been able to create an inclusive and diverse, truly diverse working community at Huckle Dream. What she's had to navigate as a woman in the tech world and how she's been able to deal with being treated like a second-class citizen. Why making TikToks is so important. And dealing with mum guilt. As well as so many other topics that you're going to find out as you listen to today's episode. And I'm sure you're going to be inspired as I was just listening to her story. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Gabby, who is the CEO of Huckletree. How are you doing, Gabby? I'm good. How are you? I am good. Um, I've been looking forward to, to this episode, to be honest, and this interview, because you your journey is, is fascinating. It's definitely very inspiring and your song has been pivoting in a lot of different lanes over the last couple of years so I guess the best place to start would be for those who don't know what um what is Huckletree? So Huckletree is something that has been in a kind of constant state of evolution over the past sort of six or seven years. Um, It started off as a pure play co-working business back in 2014, albeit with a very strong thesis that we were to curate our communities and bring the kind of best and most exciting entrepreneurs, startups and scale-up businesses together. And I think Over the past sort of six or seven years, it's grown wings as businesses do. um, And much to the virtue of the incredible team around me that has kind of come on board and joined me on the journey um, to the point where today I'd say we're no longer a pure play co-working business. We are a home for entrepreneurship um, with co-working being one of our products, but we also extend into education for entrepreneurs, acceleration Um, and corporate innovation. So three things that rhyme and that always make me sound very silly when I'm saying them, but um, all around the world of innovation and entrepreneurship. So in in a post-COVID world where there's a lot of changes, especially around around office spaces, how has that impacted you and your business? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, obviously we have seen, you know, that Lots of people and businesses, the first thing that they wanted to do when kind of COVID and lockdown happened was get rid of that office space line item on their P&L. And it's something that me and my team spent weeks, if not months, battling and and fighting for um, to kind of retain our members. But I think what we're seeing now actually is really interesting and exciting for us. It's that actually the bigger businesses now don't want to be tied into another five or 10 year lease. They don't want to be having to make predictions on, you know, the headcount of their workforce so long out and they want the flexibility and they want to be around exciting, you know, atmospheres and and atmospheres of innovation. And so actually I think for the co-working industry, and I've said this since the beginning of lockdown, the net result so far seems to be positive which is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's really, that's quite good then. So if businesses are shifting away from their traditional five to 10 year leases, 
then you see as there's going to be an uptake more in the co-working spaces with people working remotely and just want to plug into your space for one or two days a week. I think um, I think it is about it is about more flexibility and it is about we're now live entering into a world where more people are going to be working remotely, which means that companies can be more efficient with their workspace budgets. And I think one thing that we are seeing now a lot, a fair bit, is that a company of say a hundred people aren't taking office space for a hundred people anymore. They're taking office space for say for say 50, 60 people and having them alternate and optimizing for efficiency, but also for the minimum number of people that they need in the space on any given day in order to build culture, in order to have, you know, working teams working efficiently together. Etc. So it's just kind of opened our doors to a, a much wider audience, which is which is great because you know for many years we've been looking to bring these bigger businesses into our fold. And just um, guess tracking back a little bit with your your journey, how did you end up in in the tech world in what you currently do right now? So I ended up in the tech world pretty much by chance. I came across the, the co-working industry. I was living in New York um, after university. My grandparents live out there. So I kind of went and, and stayed out there for a couple of years. And I came across the co-working concept really by chance. I was working in the film industry and we ended up finding ourselves working from a co-working space before I even knew what it was, just right when they kind of first started cropping up. And I very quickly became very passionate about the concept that even if you were working in smaller teams, you could work alongside many different businesses, which today seems very normal for us because we're so familiar with the co-working market. But that wasn't the case back in 2008 in New York. And it was very novel and I thought a very good idea. Um, and so when I had to move back to London for, for family reasons, I, I just got this entrepreneurial bug and really wanted to launch my own co-working space. And then, you know, as these things do, you know, you, you start to build the plans and you start to take on board investment and very quickly the goals and the ambitions become much larger, um, at least for me with my first time business than they were at the beginning. So that's kind of how I, how I started. You went from, I think, idea to inception in about two years. How did you deal with a lot of issues that a lot of um, founders tend to have when it comes to the actual side of running and creating um, a business? Yeah, you're so right. And it's really interesting that you've picked up on that because not many people have. It, it took me a really long time um, from the moment of moving back to London and saying, okay, I'm going to incorporate this business into the when Huckletree first launched, when we first launched our first space. And I was very fortunate at the time because I had um, my brother who I've always looked up to from a kind of business perspective, even though he's my younger brother. Um, but he was the opposite of me. So when I left university and moved to New York to try my hand in the acting world, my brother left university um, and went straight to... <laughs> um, my brother left university and went straight to Goldman Sachs. And so he had a real understanding of the financial side of a business and, and kind of what I needed to do to move it forward where I didn't. And I was very, I felt, I found myself very fortunate having him to kind of help me move the business forward. Likewise in my now husband, who was my boyfriend at the time. Um, but without them, you know, the two years would have taken me four years. And what I always say is if I knew now what I, what I didn't know then, it would take me literally two months to do all of this because I know now what it takes to get a business off the ground and what each next step looks like and what I need to go to investment meetings armed with and how to hold those investment meetings and how to run a fundraising process. I didn't know any of this back then. And actually, that this realization of how little I knew at the beginning of my entre entrepreneurial journey has kind of spurned us, at, uh, propelled us at Huckletree to kind of put out a couple of entrepreneurial products that should help entrepreneurs get their business off, off the ground in a much faster time frame than I did. And in terms of, um, you just mentioned your your boyfriend and now your husband. 
he's obviously, he runs a, a VC. Did you ever feel any pressure to make Huckle Tree a success when you had him based on what he did? Even if it was just a personal ego driven, I have to make this work because of who my my partner is. Yes. Um, and I think that that um, feeling is something that I kind of go through on a daily basis. So having a husband who's a VC has been so such a positive for me in the sense of the way that he supported me throughout my journey. But in the sense of he obviously sees so many entrepreneurs on a daily basis And so, yes, I'm being compared to them and in a very overt way, you know, whenever, and, and I think it's, it's normal. And I think there are, there are many people that understand that we're moving towards a world where mental health is very important. Um, but case in hand. So we are, as I told you, we're in France. We, we kind of moved, moved here where my husband is from towards the end of lockdown to work from here. And I decided whilst we were here to take my two weeks annual leave. And for me, annual leave, even though I'm the founder and and the CEO of of a business means I really, really want to switch off my phone and I really want to just enjoy the time with my family. And yes, if there are important calls or meetings, I'll be there. But 90% of my time, I just want to catch up, catch my breath, sleep in, spend time with my kids. Um, and my husband, you know, I guess his entrepreneurs don't often show that side of them to him, even if I hope for their sake, you know, they are enjoying a balanced life as well. So yeah, I am um, being married to a VC is a, is a, is a definite positive for, for an entrepreneur, but equally, I think, you know, there is, there has been this side of it for me of always being compared to the other entrepreneurs in his portfolio for better or for worse. And how did you go about raising your, your series A with um, you and Andrew, your co-founder? Um, so we, it was a, it's a really funny story actually. So, I'd raised the seed round of 250, 250K, and I'd used that to launch our first Huckle Tree, which was a kind of small first, first Huckle Tree. And, um, and then I kind of realized that I, if, if I was to grow Huckle Tree, I needed to bring a co-founder on board. So I met Andrew, I was introduced to Andrew actually through my husband. So again, there you go, a good positive of having a, a husband who's kind of in the ecosystem. Um, and Andrew joined me in May, 2015. And in our first, um, week of, as co-founders, we went to see a building that, um, we were kind of offered, uh, by a development company that, that would become our second space, realized that we needed to raise the bones of two and a half million, um, which is a lot of money, you know, by anyone's standards. But for me at that time of my entrepreneurial journey felt like a massive amount of money. Um, and, you know, we kind of, thought to ourselves, well, look, we need to raise two and a half million. We don't have it in the bank. We had about 30K in the bank at that moment in time. But we have to kind of fake it till we make it, sign the building and go and raise the money. Because if we're not taking that, if we're not jumping at that opportunity, then definitely one of our competitors will be. And so we just winged it and we signed the building. We kind of made as if the finances were all good and we backed our own ability to kind of go out and raise the money. And we did. We went out um, and we ran a process that took us from May to October. And we, I think, have always benefited from really having a strong relationship, being able to finish each other's sentences, complementing each other very well, and both sharing a very solid vision of how Huckle is different in a very crowded industry and what we want to, where we want to take it to. And so we went and we ran this process and it wasn't easy, but we were introduced, you know, the jigsaw pieces started falling into place. And the first investor that signed on, you know, brought another investor with, 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 with them, et cetera, et cetera. So that was our seed round. And, you know, to say that that felt like a huge challenge for me back then would be an understatement. And what's funny is also in the same week um, as signing that first building, Andrew and I took each other for coffee and both announced to each other that we were to have our first 
babies um, as co-founders as co-founders do. So um, our first children were born within a, a week of each other in January 2016. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you develop that? chemistry that you just talked about and you've taken it to a whole different level having kids just a week <laughs> and our second kids by the way who were born within two months of each other we just um i think we got really lucky in being introduced to each other because andrew and i were very similar people um to a certain extent in that we are passionate you know we're building a business that we're passionate about we have a strong work ethic um that matches each other's um and we're we're good people i like to think but equally you know we like to have fun and we like to enjoy um our days and you know if that means a bit of balance if that means having a great team around us whatever it means we share that passion and that enthusiasm so i think we were just quite lucky in in being introduced to each other I was going to ask you, um, the, the first 250 that you raised, was that through friends and family? So, um, no, well, part of it was, I think a really close, first of all, my, my father was, was really generous and gave me a bit of money in the beginning, pre the seed round to just kind of develop the concepts a little bit that he said, okay, this will kind of convert into shares, you know, when you, when you raise your round. Um, so I don't want to kind of, you know, not mention the, the origins of Huckletree and, and not mention him. Um, but when I went to raise 250k, that was more than, you know, I could have done really through my immediate friends and family. So I, um, pre-Andrew was in a kind of co-founder-ish relationship with a friend of mine called Alex, who I was friends with from university. And I'd kind of approached Alex quite strategically to help me launch Huckletree because I didn't, um, you know, again, from the financial side, I really needed somebody who could come on board and help me raise that seed around. And Alex was kind of in the finance world and had access to many contacts that I didn't. So through Alex, we went and, and raised this seed round of 250k. Um, most of it, 200, 200k of it came through um, an angel investor, an individual who is still, you know, part of our part of the business. And, um, and 50k also came through um, a very close friend of my husband's. So I was, I was quite fortunate to have, you know, a couple of contacts that I could approach. And then I think did the right thing with, with bringing Alex on board to help me raise that round. And Alex kind of stayed involved in the business for, I'd say probably two or three years. And, you know, slowly, I think once Andrew joined and, and, um, Alex wanted to focus on his own business, we kind of found a way to exit Alex in a way that made everyone feel good. If you were to do it now, if you were to advise founders now who are looking to raise that first initial seed, how would you go about it? I think probably it's a really good question. I think in my next business, and I was only speaking about this last night with an investor that um, I was speaking to who's just invested in um, one of the first companies that came out of Huckletree's Accelerator program. And what he said about them was they are very good at being scrappy and at building something out of nothing. And on kind of 50K's worth of investment, they'd managed to generate sort of 1.5 million in revenue pre-COVID. And then kind of, you know, when COVID hit, everything's been on pause since then. But I think for my next business, I'd like to build a business that can start generating revenue and start having traction before I need to raise tons of money for it. Obviously with a co-working business, that's harder because, you know, I need to go and get a building and fit it out and that's not cheap. Um, but in my next business, I'd like to be, I'd like to see some traction before I raise money. And I think that's probably the best way to make sure that you're raising on, on decent terms. Have you already got plans in mind? <laughs> no, look, I, 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 I don't have any plans in mind. I think it would be um, very premature because I definitely see myself at Huckletree for, um, you know, and, and all of us together, I hope, for the next, for the next kind of 
three, four years. I mean, who knows? Um, but I do always, you know, I keep a, a notebook of exciting businesses that I might one day like to like to start. Um, just so I don't forget them when the time comes. So at Huckletree, you have managed to have a diverse workforce of about 60% women and 40% men, which is absolutely amazing. How have you managed to to do that? So I love that you're getting all of these stats. Um, you're you're right, and I'm I'm really passionate about that, and I'm really proud of that. Um, <clears throat> we have a we're kind of seventy odd people on the team is very diverse in terms of male to female, um, but also in terms of ethnicity, religion, sexuality, age, and socioeconomic backgrounds, um, and, and, uh, nationalities as well. And it's something that we're all very passionate about and we're all, um, you know, massive believers in that building a team that is representative of the world around us is a, the right thing to do and the right way to, to build a business. Um, B also leads to a better, um, end product, um, and an end product that is reflective of many minds and many different, um, points of views, points of view and perspectives. And I think that, um, a lot of times entrepreneurs fall fall into the trap of saying, I can't build a diverse team because A, B, C, X, Y, Z. Um, and I don't buy any of the excuses. I think that building for diversity is something that anyone can do, especially when you're fortunate enough to live in a city as multicultural as London is. There's really no excuse to not building a diverse team. And it's just something that we have done um, by virtue of making a point of it. So we have um, a whole strategy around it. But, you know, one of the things is we won't close a recruitment process if we haven't seen one um, ethnically diverse candidate in the final round of that process. And I think when you look at it that way and when you kind of put benchmarks in place, they serve as course correction. If you're going off course and you're not going to hit that, you have that benchmark in your mind and you veer back to it. And, you know, there are, there are kind of other ways that I can talk to about how to build a, a recruitment process that enables you to meet, you know, as, as wide an array of candidates as you can. Um, but ultimately it doesn't have to be rocket science. And I think it just has to have the right minds behind it and have, um, a um, group of people that are, are passionate about it, but that are adamant on it and on building a diverse team. And I think that um, if you have those things in place, you will, you will be able to do so. And as the CEO of Huckletree, what does leadership mean to you? Hmm. It's a good question. Uh, it's really interesting. I was reading an article the other day about the kind of top leadership traits from around the world from about, not, it wasn't a great sample size, but it was about 150 leaders interviewed from around the world and, and, you know, what they felt their leadership traits were that kind of help, had helped them. I think there are probably a couple of things. I think the first thing is integrity um, leading with truthfulness, leading with integrity, leading by being a good person. Um, and I think that has really, that has been something that has kind of guided me through the process and, you know, helped me become the person that I am and the person that I am in business is that it's not all for me about the bottom line and the profit of the business. Obviously, as the CEO, that's a, that's a really important factor. But for me, it's about leading a team of people with integrity and supporting them and being honest with them and bringing them into the process. So I think leading with integrity for me is, is the biggest trait that any leader should aspire to have. Um, I think the second thing is being able to effectively communicate. So it's great if you have all these plans um, and if you have a great vision for the, for the business, but if you can't communicate to the team um, 
what these plans are or why you're choosing to launch a specific product at a specific moment in time or what your strategy is to get your business, see your business through COVID, let's say, then I think you'll, you'll fail yourself as a leader. So if the first is honesty and integrity, the second is communication. And the third is being very um, clear in your ability to set goals for the company, for yourself and for the company. And I think without that structure and without that direction, it's very hard to lead a business. So those are the three things that I optimize myself for integrity, communication, and goal setting. And I'm aware that I will fall down in other areas. Something that you just, um, one of the the first one you touched on integrity, I read somewhere that when you were raising your series A, you felt the need to declare that you were pregnant, even though, like you mentioned, Andrew was at the same time, but he didn't. Why did you feel the need to do that? Yeah, it's funny. And I guess... Look, there is still this, the fact is, is that I was going to go on maternity leave for a few months and I, I ended up taking 10 weeks, which is nothing and which I regretted. Um, and Andrew wasn't, you know, Andrew is the secondary caregiver and I'm the primary. So, you know, maybe he didn't need to, and I did need to tell them that this was going to be happening. And that is just the way that the, that is just the way that, um, that it is for parents, you know, mothers still go on maternity leave. Have you faced any barriers then as, as a woman and as a mother in, in the tech world? It's a good question. I haven't, I haven't. I, um, I think I've, Maybe it's a ver- maybe it's just due to the people that we surround ourselves with in the business. Um, and actually, my investors at that time, when I told them, they couldn't have reacted better. They were so, um, you know, it was almost like it was a non-event. And they were thankful that I told them, but, you know, also kind of telling me that I hadn't, I didn't need to. And I think I really, really respected that. And that, that reaction is something that has just kind of paved the way for my relationship with that particular investor over the years and has kind of built a really solid foundation. So his, his reaction, I think was really just made me feel really comfortable. So I was, I was, I was very fortunate in that respect Sorry, I'll backtrack a bit. There has been, there has been, there have been a few times where, as a woman, I have felt like the second-class citizen in the room. Um, I don't want to name any names or give too much color around the story, but there have definitely been a few investment meetings where Andrew has been spoken to, and I have been ignored for the duration of the meeting. Um, but I, I, I guess I kind of push that to the back of my mind because when I'm in those positions, I'm very conscious of it and then very consciously make sure that those people aren't really brought into our Hockeltry universe. And how has being a mother shaped Hockeltry and shaped the business? Being a mother... I think has been, um, well, it's obviously been a great journey of its own accord, but I think with regards to Huckletree, it has helped me to be more understanding of my team who are parents. And I think that has, you know, manifested itself in the conversations, the relationships I have, the benefits that we produce as a business and that we offer. Um, and, and the flexibility that we can offer as a business to parents. And I think that um, if Andrew and I weren't parents, I'm not sure that we would we would see things as we do. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think um, you've got the, 20, the kids' studio, the power parents package and things like that that you guys have initiated at Huckle during the last couple of years, which has been 
very different to a lot of the tech industry in general, actually. Yeah, and there's um, there are um, definitely ways that we have tried to support the kind of entrepreneurial parent community. Um, definitely, but I think that I am probably prouder of the ways that we support our team members who are parents because I think we've really done our best to kind of demonstrate that support. Um, and I think it's probably felt throughout, throughout the company. So we have one of the things that we do, and this is kind of back to your question on kind of building a diverse team, but also ties into this question is we have a committee, um, a culture and diversity committee, and we meet, there are representatives from across the business. So from different locations, different geographies, different, um, different demographics, and we kind of meet you know, virtually for now every every two weeks. And we discuss all sorts of things across the business from hiring to our DNI strategy to how we support parents, etc. And you know, we have probably half of the people on the committee are parents. Um, or at least, you know, a significant number of people on the committee are parents. And so I think that you know, being parents, all, all, all of the experiences that you go through in your life will, um, lend, will manifest in the way that you treat people, right. And in, in the ways that you, um, empathize with other people. And I think that, you know, for me, being a woman is one of them and being a parent is another. Um, so it's definitely been an important part of, of the business that we're creating. So how you managed to deal with um, the guilt that comes managing a business and being a mother at the same time? Oh my God. Yeah, well, you know what? I tell you what, I don't have guilt when I'm at work because when I'm at work or when I have to get up early to go to work, etc., I rationalize it by saying to myself, I am showing my boys that a woman can lead a business, that a woman can work as hard as you know, her husband or her partner, um, that the father doesn't have to be the sole breadwinner, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, these lessons are, you know, really important lessons that I want to bring my children into the world with. Um, and also I don't feel guilt because, you know, from a financial perspective, what I earn contributes to our household. And so, you know, it is in my children's best interest that I work. Um, but, when I'm at home, I feel a lot of guilt. So if I'm at home and it's a Sunday and my two children are awake, if I'm not with one, I'm with the other. And if I'm not with either of them, I feel guilty. So that's something that I need to manage because what that means is that I never get a waking second to myself and it's exhausting. So I'm trying to um, reframe my mindset like the other day I, um, was questioning, you know, we're in France, I've taken these two weeks as annual leave and my husband, you know, jumps, jumps on his bike and goes down to the beach in the morning and goes for a swim. And I was questioning, do I want to do that? You know, do I take my older son with me or should I stay home and be with the baby? What should I do? And I just caught myself doing something which I think is really good and saying to myself, Gabby, what do you want to do right now? Um, and so I, I did what I, whatever it was at that time that I really wanted to do that wasn't what I felt I should do, you know, for the kids. And I'm trying to do more of that. That is so crucial, that point that you just made that obviously I'm, I'm a man, so I can't 100% relate to that. But I know um, having a conversation with um, my wife as well as other, other females, that's something that people talk about that they don't have time mothers especially talk about they don't have time for themselves and even that battle between um the two kids and who she's spending time with and and all of that all that kind of takes that me time away so as someone who leads a company as someone who models integrity how much time would you say is important for you to have for yourself well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that 
I definitely, you know, the evenings when the kids are in bed is like a kind of haven for me. And I really use that time wisely. And sometimes it's, I'm going to do a bit of exercise. Sometimes it might be, I'm going to try and go for a walk or I'm going to watch a mindless TV show, whatever it might be. Um, but I think that, you know, I think part of it is I have young kids and ultimately the majority of my free time is, is going to be spent with them. And I'm more than okay with that. But I think on on any given day, if I don't have a solid hour to myself at some point during the day, then I kind of go to bed feeling a bit frazzled and feeling a bit exhausted mentally and physically. So it can be, you know, an hour when I get home from work or when I finish work and, you know, if my husband is with the kids at that point, or it can be an hour at the end of the day. But I just remember also, you know, lockdown was really counterproductive in this, in this regard, because it just wouldn't stop. You'd be working. And I'm sure this was the same for, you know, entrepreneurs, parents, non-entrepreneurs around the world, you know, everyone, but you just, those lines would be really blurred and your kind of working hours would go on into the night. And I mean, for me, I would, work all day, um, stop work to give the kids their bath and, and put them to bed and read my eldest, his, his story. And then I'd get back on and I used to run kind of founder. I still do, but just kind of paused for August count founder coaching groups. And I'd get back on to my Google hangouts, um, at, you know, eight, 9 PM at night and, and run a kind of hour or two hours worth of founder coaching groups. And I don't, I, I, I actually don't enjoy the days where I can't catch my breath and just lie on my bed if I want to with my feet up for half an hour, um, and mindlessly check my phone. Um, so actually I have, I, I made a joke of it to my husband last night. I started, um, making a TikTok video last night and my husband was like, Oh, not again. I just don't want to hear any more of those TikTok songs. <laughs> With full honesty, I looked him square in the eye and I said, Antoine, I don't want it to be the end of my annual leave. And for me to regret that I didn't spend enough time making TikToks. And honestly, that, that is it. Like, it, you know, in my free time, I just want to do mindless things and have a bit of fun. That's really good advice. You didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that you were you were destined to be an entrepreneur? I find it really interesting that your your dad's into property. Yeah. Your grandfather was also was into property, and so was your mum. Yeah. Yeah. And you're now in that space as well. Yeah. Um I don't, I don't know, to be honest, if I was destined to be an entrepreneur, I think going into the property world was obviously a world that I felt comfortable in and felt that I could kind of figure it out in those early moments because I'd kind of grown up with it around me. And that gave me that confidence to kind of say, okay, I can do this. I can launch a co-working business. Um, and I'm very aware of that, um, that, um, what's the word? um, advantage that I had in that respect. <clears throat> but I don't know if I was, you know, destined to be an entrepreneur. I think I could have equally, I, I just love being around lots of people. So for me at Huckletree in the early days, that was, you know, being around lots of people in the workspaces, even though at, the, at you know, in the very early days, it was me and one other person. I'd have all these amazing people around, around us in our first workspace. Now it's, um, you know, especially during lockdown, we obviously haven't been into the spaces that much, but I've built this incredible community in our team and having, you know, the various people that work with me at Huckletree around me really motivates me. Um, and there's nothing that I love more than days where it's back to back with internal meetings and brainstorming sessions. And I feel like, you know, everything is just working as it should. But I think I could have been equally as happy working for um, a larger organization. I think I could have found some some happiness in that. And I often say after, after Huckletree, what do I want to do? Um, and one of the things that surfaces to mind is, um, I don't know, 
but I, I'd quite like to work for Google. <laughs> it's random. <laughs> I think there's something about having lots of people around, having a mission or being part of something that I feel is important and does good for the world. Um, and maybe that's part naivety, but I definitely think that there are tons of Google products that, you know, benefit the world. Um, and also having great workspace. And I think, you know, Google has that. <laughs> you once said you love to be the dumbest person in the room. Now <laughs> that's a, that's a very interesting statement because that, that takes a lot of humility and just letting go of the pride, letting go of the ego and just be like, you know what? I'm in a room where I'm not the smartest one around. I'm okay with that. But how has that helped you as, as a person grow to having that kind of ethic and that approach to, to being around people? Well, I think that, you know, from a team building perspective, that mindset has enabled us to bring people on who are experts in their domain and who we can learn a lot from. And again, you know, back to what I was saying about, I love those days where, you know, it's back-to-back team meetings, exciting, collaborative. If I was leading all of those, and if I had all the answers in all of those meetings, I don't think I'd find it that exciting. And I think what is exciting is, you know, the ideas that come from everyone and the shared idea that surfaces And I think in order for that to be, yes, it comes down to diversity, but also to your point now about, you know, not being the one that knows it all, it comes down to just being able to, you know, surround yourself with people that have done interesting things that, you know, are experts in their respective domains and, and with everyone being okay, that, you know, no one has to have all the answers. So I don't know. It's just, it's not something that I've given much thought to. And actually now when you say that quote, it sounds quite dumb. Um, and I kind of am like, did I actually say that? (laughs) God, (laughs) but actually, but I maintain it. Like I would rather be at a dinner party where, you know, if that question, which celebrities or which like famous people would you invite to your dinner party? Like, I want to have the politicians or like, you know, the musicians that have done really well and have like built an empire around them. Or, you know, I want, I'd want to pick their brains. Um, I just, I've, I've always had a passion for being around interesting people. And I guess, you know, to come full circle, that's part of the reason why I wanted to start Huckle Tree is to be able to bring, you know, great entrepreneurs together. I think what I love Um, that statement is I think that's one of the keys of being a great leader is just to be like I don't need to be the smartest person in the room my role is to bring all the right people into the room and maybe may ultimately make the right decision but based on the people around me and that's why I love that statement because in a world where people is all about power and look at me and I'm the decision maker and everything I say goes, you're actually saying, no, I'm going to bring the right people around me and that's how we're going to make a great decision. And that's why I love that statement. It's a very, very powerful statement, which if a lot of leaders had that same mindset, which is a growth mindset, I think a lot of cultures would be very, very different. Yeah, I love that. You've, you've summed it up way better than I did. <laughs> Thanks. I'll use that line next time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you're right. And I, and I, and I really feel that, you know, most of the time my role as CEO isn't about, you know, thinking or claiming that I know it all. It's about, um, a lot of diplomacy, a lot of interpretation and a lot of facilitation. Um, what lessons would you say businesses can learn from parents who've had to adapt during COVID? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. You've got me stumped on that one. Because I'm thinking about how um, a lot of parents, for example, have had to still work, cope with their partners being at home and still look after their family as well and how they're just going to turn around and still be productive. So on that flexibility side. Yeah. Yeah. I think, look, I think you're right in that the world has undergone this mass experiment over the past sort of five, six months on working from home. And all of a sudden we all realize that actually 
we can give more flexibility to our teams. We can support them if they need to work remotely, you know, some of the time, part of the time, all of the time in some cases. But I also really, really feel that, um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of world of businesses where culture is so important. And obviously Huckletree comes into that and, you know, most of the businesses I would say in the kind of tech innovation worlds kind of come into that, you know, you're, you're, you're building a product or a service, but you're building a culture and you're building a mini world of your own. And I don't think that, um, at least I don't believe that you can build an incredible culture if everybody is working remotely the whole time. So I think flexibility is good, but you equally need to be able to bring people together as well. So true. So I'm going to come to the end shortly, but before we do, I'm going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions. Yay. Okay. So you are self-proclaimed adrenaline junkie. Yes. What are your, your top three adrenaline activities? Oh, so funny that you asked it. So yesterday, my um, my husband took me on a scooter, and it reminded me of the time where a friend of mine brought me from upstate New York back to the city on the back of his motorbike. I think being on the back of a, a motorbike or a scooter for me just feels free, and I love it. And I think it's one of the few th- one of the things that I love the most in the world is just listening to music on the back of a motorbike. <laughs> random but true so that's um my first one the second one um i don't think i'd ever do it again but i loved when i jumped out of a plane yeah that was really really fun but it was kind of a okay tick the box i've done that i don't need to ever do it again my boyfriend at the time obviously thought completely different because he's um gone and jumped out of a plane like hundreds of times since we did it together for the first time and actually got his license to do it alone but for me it was just a nope done that don't need to do it again but it was really fun um and my third one i always have a great memory of um i used to i used to travel a bit when i was when i was younger and obviously in the pre-COVID world. And one of the places that I found myself going to quite a lot was uh, Venezuela. And in Venezuela, there was this, um, we had a friend, a man called Israel. And Israel used to take us on these walks along the beach and up kind of cliffs. And I remember the first time he took us to a cliff edge where people were kind of jumping in. And it must have been, 30, no, 30 meters feels like a lot, 20, 20 meters probably. And he kind of looked at us and we were like five or six of us and everybody kind of looked at each other. And I just took my flip-flops off calmly, walked to the edge and just jumped straight in. And it's those things. Those are the kind of things that I love doing. And I loved, I just generally love being in nature. I love, you know, going on hikes, swimming in the sea, um, and I think for me, it's because I do find it quite scary. Like I do find it quite scary being in the sea, but when I push myself and I get out of my comfort zone and I do it, I feel good about it. And especially now because I've got, you know, my eldest is four and a half and I don't want him to grow up with the fears that I have. And I, and so I try to kind of, you know, just grapple with them and pretend I'm not afraid of anything so that he does them. So I guess I've led myself down the path where I now realize that I do all these things because I'm scared and because I want to push myself out of my comfort zone. Love that. What is the biggest life lesson you've learned so far? That people are inherently good and that you should trust them um, until proven otherwise. And I think most people, a lot of people think the other way. It's like, I'm not going to trust you until you show me that I can, but actually I don't go into relationships like that. And when I meet people, I, I think that, you know, they're, they're good people. What does, um, success mean to you? A feeling of fulfillment is what it means to me. And that's pretty much, I, I, I think that means, you know, you can be fulfilled without having all the money in the world. You can be fulfilled without having created, you know, a huge organization around you. But I think that when I feel successful, I feel fulfilled. And that's how 
I judge that I feel that I've achieved something in, in, in my work life. And as a parent, what would you say, how would you say that's helped you the most with the way you approach life and work? Um, cut for being cutthroat with my time. I think when you're a parent, you know, you realize that like we were saying earlier, your work day needs to be super efficient because you can't stick around at the end of the day and you need to go home and you need to put your children in bed. So being a parent has helped me become more efficient with my time and more cutthroat. And the last but not least, what would you want your legacy to be? Um, that's a really, really good question. I think I, um, I am, I would want people to say that I did something that was beneficial to the world around me. And that's probably the thread that will take me through my life. And I love, by the way, I love the concept of having many lives within one life. So today I'm an entrepreneur, but maybe in five years time, I won't be an entrepreneur anymore. You know, maybe I'll want to do something completely different, but I think that the thread that I would like to see me through my life is that I was doing positive, positive things that help the people around me. And you are certainly doing that. I think, um, if people are not aware, there's a number of different initiatives that you are currently engaged in around changing the space around funding when it comes to women, when it comes to um, ethnicity, things like the Fair Funding Nod project that you've been involved with. So you're definitely pushing, and as a company, Huckletree, definitely pushing that um, for change in that industry. So you're doing amazing work and you're definitely on that path already. And it's really, really good to see people who are not just talking about it, but actually doing it as well. So it's really good. Oh, thank you so much. I agree. <laughs> it has been a pleasure talking to you this morning while battling the elements. Like you say, seagulls, a wasp attack, my dog, kids, battling with the iPad. I mean, you didn't even see half of it, but thank you for putting up with all of it. <laughs> this perfectly captures the reality of working from home during the pandemic. I absolutely love it, and I'm sure people can definitely relate to it. Don't forget, I have show notes on my website, everydayleadership.buzzsprout.com. So check that out. And if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe and tell someone else. Appreciate your support. I'll see you next time. This is Everyday Leadership. Everyday Leadership.